This recording is from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Laura and in each podcast I'll be meeting a geographical expert to discuss their research and where geography has taken them. In 2015, over 1 million people took a perilous journey across the Mediterranean Sea to arrive in Europe in search of safety. It has been four years since these unprecedented movements dominated media headlines and political debates. But the drivers of migration and the reasons why people feel they have no choice than to take dangerous journeys in search of a better life continue to be misunderstood and misrepresented. In this podcast, we hear from Professor Heaven Crawley from the Centre for Trust, Peace and Social Relations at Coventry University. We discuss her research that drew on the experiences of 500 refugees and migrants who arrived on the shores of Europe in 2015. As part of World Refugee Week and World Refugee Day on June 20th, we hope it is an essential listen to geographers who want to better understand how migration, inequality and development intersect. Heaven, can you tell me what happened during the Mediterranean migration crisis of 2015? I think what was most noticeable about 2015 was the arrival of uh, over a million refugees and migrants into Europe, which generated a huge amount of public interest, attention and also political uh, concern, I guess. What's important to say, though, is that this was not the first time that there was migration across the Mediterranean. In fact, there's been migration to Europe, of course, for decades, but also that relatively to migration in the rest of the world, the numbers in Europe were still pretty small. The issue that was driving those numbers were primarily, although not exclusively, the Syrian crisis, which has been ongoing since 2011, which escalated and culminated in the years that followed with a large number of people on the move, particularly in Turkey, Lebanon and Jordan, many of whom, because Europe was proximate, decided to travel onwards. So, It was exceptional in terms of the numbers of people arriving in a very compressed period of time, but it was not unique in the sense that all over the world people are moving and people have been moving to Europe for many decades. What range of factors informed migrants' decisions to leave their home then in 2015 and before that? You mentioned the Syrian crisis. Could you tell me more about that, please? If we're looking specifically at what happened in Europe in 2015, then there were a combination of different factors that effectively came together to generate a particular set of flows. So around 50% or more of those arriving in Europe were from Syria, displaced by the conflict that's been ongoing for many years. Actually, many of those people had left their home years previously, but had found it impossible to make a life in the countries to which they'd moved. And because the situation in Syria did not look to be improving or any signs that the conflict would end, at that point they decided that their children needed to be in school, they needed opportunities for employment, etc., and they moved on. The rest of the people arriving in Europe were from a very large range of countries, particularly those arriving into Italy. They were from around 25, 26 different countries, mostly from Central and Western Africa. 
where there's been a whole range of different conflicts and issues that have been arising. And many of those people had traveled to Libya in the first instance for work. The situation in Libya has also been deteriorating since 2011. And many of those people, and it's now very well documented, had been subject to human rights violations of one kind or another. And so they also had decided to move on to look for better things. So it was almost like the combination of these two different sets of flows driven by a range of different factors, but ultimately joined by the issue of not being able to access rights or employment that came together in the context of 2015 to generate these larger flows than we'd seen previously. Can you describe the sorts of journeys experienced by people during the crisis in 2015? People had in many cases, very long and protracted journeys. While some of the people that we spoke to in our research had arrived in in Europe almost directly, the vast majority had travelled initially within the country to become internally displaced people and then onwards looking for a place where they could seek protection and a new life. So for many of those people, the journeys had lasted a very long time. There had been lots of difficulties on those journeys, not just in terms of the Mediterranean crossing, which of course we heard most about in 2015, but actually in terms of all different points of the journey, particularly crossing the Sahara Desert, for example, but also in their interactions with a whole range of smugglers and other people who facilitated that journey. Because for most people, it was impossible to travel legally. There are very few legal routes. So when a journey is long, protracted and often irregular, the dangers and the difficulties that people experience increase. So many of those journeys were journeys that were accompanied by death, by violence, by separation from family and friends, and more than anything, a great deal of uncertainty about the future, about where people would go, whether they would be able to join family members that had arrived elsewhere, and indeed even how they would pay for those journeys. So we have tales and uh, stories of people having to pay through their bodies, through sex, uh, by getting family members to send uh, funds from elsewhere around the world. So it was a very um, complicated and mixed picture, depending on people's circumstances, the connections they had within different places, and their ability to mobilise their resources and their social networks in order to be able to make the J at all. So do you think there's been a neglect of the kind of in-between of migration stories. So perhaps migration in popular press and public understanding is this kind of seeing them as kind of linear journeys. But actually what you're saying here is that they were very complicated and drawn out. The difficulty with a lot of migration coverage and actually a lot of migration research is that it does focus primarily either on the reasons why people leave or the reasons why they go to the places that they end up. And we know from our research, but also from many other studies now, that that journey is increasingly not a linear one and it's increasingly not direct in part because the kinds of immigration control policies that have been put in place make it very difficult for people to move directly. So what we see is a neglect of the bits in between, which often, of course, are not known to be in between at that point, because it only becomes the in between once people move. There are very many millions of people who are living in places like Turkey or Jordan or other countries who never intend to move, who want to remain in the 
region and we don't really understand their experiences or explore them because they're not directly impacting on what the press or the policymakers are interested in. From our perspectives in terms of the research, if we want to address some of the drivers, for example, that lead people to make the dangerous journey across the Mediterranean, we can only do that by understanding what it's like to live in a camp, what kind of resources people have, how safe they feel and what rights they have, for example, in terms of um, citizenship in a country or the right to move on somewhere else legally. If they don't have those things, then often um, that situation becomes untenable and that's why they decide to move on. So making the in-between more tenable might um, make it less necessary for people to make those dangerous onward journeys. So can you describe some of the research that you did on these in-between spaces and who you worked with, how you worked with the communities? Well, the research we did was funded by the Economic and Social Research Council, and it was specifically aimed at understanding why the people that were arriving on the beaches of southern Europe in 2015 had decided to make that journey, what their experience had been on the journey itself, and what their hopes and aspirations were for the future. So during that research, and it was only in a three-month period from September to December of 2015, we interviewed 500 people who were in Italy, Greece mostly, but also Turkey and Malta, about their experiences. And we worked with a range of community organisations and advocacy groups within those contexts to be able to find people who were able and willing to talk to us, given the difficulties that they were experiencing. Those people had a lot to say about why they had made that journey, not just in terms of the reasons why they left their country in the first place, but also why they had decided to move on. And it became very clear that the decision to come to Europe was not a single decision. It was the final stage or one of the most recent stages at that point of a series of multiple decisions, some of which have been taken back to back. We met, for example, Afghan families that had moved 14 times within the course of two or three months on that journey. And we met others that had traveled initially to Turkey, had lived there for several years, in fact, and tried to make a new life and then had decided to move on. So capturing that complexity and the differences, for example, by nationality, country of origin, gender, whether people are traveling with or out children, is really important in understanding the dynamics of those journeys. And that's really what we were trying to do, was to not to focus only on the beginning or the end of the journey, but on all the different factors that shape that migratory experience. So in that vein then of addressing the complexity and geographers being opened up to, as you said, not approaching these issues in kind of linearity, how helpful are categories such as migrant and refugee as an identity? Are they helpful or are they more complex? The categories that are associated with people who move have become, I guess, quite rigid over the years. And they've also become quite separate. They are legal categories primarily, which determine whether or not somebody has access to rights, access to protection, and if so, what rights and protection they might have access to. That's particularly important for refugees who, under international refugee law, are entitled to have their claims for protection heard and, where appropriate, be granted a subsidiary form of protection because they're not safe in their own countries. Now, of course, there are people moving for all sorts of other reasons. They might be moving to join family members or to access education or to be able to work. Those people are not entitled to these forms of protection. And so this distinction between 
refugees as people who are entitled to protection and migrants who are not has become increasingly important. The reality, though, is much more messy. The truth is that some people move initially as refugees, for example, from a place like Syria or Afghanistan, but then over time, their needs become not just about protection, but how they're going to rebuild a life. And so they have economic needs, they have social needs, and they may make secondary onward migratory movements. Similarly, while people might leave their homes in West Africa for reasons of looking for a better life because of poverty and the need for employment, they may find themselves in a place like Libya, where they become in a refugee-like situation, where their human rights are violated, they're not protected. So although these categories are important in terms of the legal and policy response, the problem is that these protracted journeys have made those categories less meaningful when it comes to the actual experience themselves and how you differentiate and unpick who is or isn't deserving of protection. So what a lot of people have increasingly tried to do is to try to look at the whole journey. And rather than focusing in only on, for example, the country of destination, they've been trying to understand the extent to which people are able to access the things that are fundamental human rights for everybody, regardless of the migration status, um, and try to ensure that when people arrive in a country, these categories don't discriminate against them because their experiences haven't fitted exactly with what the convention definitions are. So it is important that we recognise the specific needs for protection of some people, but it's also important that we recognise that all migrants have human rights and that in the process of moving, in reality, people's experiences take them across the categories and in between these different policy definitions. Which sorts of organisations work together to try and uphold the human rights? of migrants and refugees? There's a lot of organisations working to uphold the rights of refugees and migrants, but they're quite often separate. So you have primarily the United Nations High Commission for Refugees that works with people who are fleeing situations of conflict and human rights abuse. And then you have a whole range of other organisations. Within the UN, you have the International Organisation for Migration, but you also have a range of international organisations and smaller NGOs that provide services for both groups. And of course, When it comes to things like, for example, rescuing people from drowning in the Mediterranean, these groups don't make any difference between the categories. As far as they're concerned, there's a boat that has people on it. Whether those people are refugees or migrants, legally speaking, is irrelevant. They're human beings who need to be uh, saved from that immediate problem. And so you'll get humanitarian organisations like Madison Sans Frontières or the Red Cross, who are really interested only in the humanitarian response and who are not interested at all in the categories. Of course, there's also a whole range of other organisations who are interested in integration, in people's rights once they arrive in a country. And those are organisations who might be working with the general population or other vulnerable and marginalised groups. So... The specific organisations that work with refugees and migrants, but there's a whole range of other actors who, in fact, are as important and potentially more important in addressing some of the needs in terms of protection and rescue, but also in terms of longer term integration and resettlement. Could you tell me which sorts of actors are involved in this notion of smuggling and kind of unpack the idea of smuggling? Our research showed that the idea of smuggling is actually much more complicated than it's often presented. And sometimes people have to use a smuggler and sometimes they don't need to. So where, for example, travel is legal, for example, of the ECOWAS region in West Africa, where people can mostly move freely between countries, then it's not necessary to use a smuggler or any kind of facilitator to help you cross the 
border because that's uh, legal and possible. Of course, when they reach a border that's um, not possible to cross legally, unless there is some way of applying for permission to make that journey, they'll have to rely upon somebody else to assist them. So who they use depends in part upon the nature of the journey also, the amount of money that they have at their disposal or can get access to via, for example, family members living elsewhere, uh, but also where they're trying to go. So at a very simple level, a, a smuggler might facilitate a journey by hiding somebody in the back of a lorry or a bus and driving them across a border for maybe a couple of hundred dollars. It becomes more complicated if a person wants to travel by air because, of course, it's more expensive for the travel, but also the smuggler has to work much harder to get the paperwork that will enable them to make that journey because there's far more checks. So that in that case, the smuggler may work with others in order to be able to access, for example, the documentation. And the journey may change on the way because situations Situations may change on the way, borders may close and open. There are also, of course, people who are more pernicious, they were what you might call traffickers, and they are people who exploit people's vulnerability and in order to be able to not just access money on the journey, but to be able to maintain a relationship with people after they've arrived somewhere. So often it's people who can't pay for a journey directly and who agree to work and to give the money from that would have come from that work to the person who's facilitated the journey. So they have an ongoing relationship with the person, and that would be described as trafficking. In lots of other circumstances, though, and it was very common in our research, the people that were doing the facilitating or helping on the journey were often friends and family members. They weren't getting any money at all, or they were getting a small amount of money just to be able to cover some of the direct costs. So there is a whole range of different people who are involved in the process, but they only have to be involved because there are no legal routes. Where there are legal routes, where someone has a passport and can make an application for a visa, then of course none of these things are necessary. To pick up on there, you mentioned borders. Why do you think there is potentially much more focus on borders and maintaining borders than actually making journeys and routes more safe and legal for people in need? The irony is that although there's a lot more focus on borders these days, in reality, most people who move globally, internationally, do so legally. They do so using a passport, they do so using a visa, or they're able to take advantage of visa-free travel. Because those things are legal, we don't hear about them. So we don't have any interest or focus necessarily on people who are traveling through airports, because mostly all of that is legal and it's controlled and safe. Where borders become a point of interest is where they are crossed illegally and as a consequence people are at risk, vulnerable, exploited or are subject to certain kinds of human rights abuses or even die. So the association of borders with migration is really only in the public eye and in the policy eye when those journeys are not regular. So as borders have become closed down, as it's in some cases, but not all, become harder for people to migrate across the border, for example, when they close down the border between Greece and Turkey, then those stories become more prevalent because there are more attempts to stop people from crossing. So it's not so much that the borders are more important, but the extent to which it's possible to legally cross the borders. Where it's legal and possible for people to, to make that access, then we don't really hear about borders. It's only when it becomes irregular or illegal that that becomes a problem.
Do you think the media adequately represent these stories that we hear about migration and border crossings? Well, the media has been notoriously problematic when it comes to migration, not just in the recent past, but historically. There are different parts of the media, of course, but if we're talking about the printed press, particularly in a country like the UK, there has been a lot of emphasis on the failure of immigration control and migration being out of control more generally. And that has fed into a perception that migration is a problem, often by focusing on the bits that we've been talking about, the bits that are irregular, the bits that are dangerous. In fact, most people, as I said, cross borders legally, and that kind of migration is generally not spoken about or covered. So it tends to give a misrepresentation about the nature of migration in general and the particularities of it in the context of what was happening in Europe over the recent past. And part of that has been about focusing only on the situation in Europe, because, of course, if the media was interested much more in the backstories of the people who moved, of the reasons why they left in the first place, and of the very difficult circumstances they experienced on the journey, then there might be more public understanding and maybe even sympathy for those people who are arriving who feel, rightly or wrongly, that they have little or no choice other than to make that journey. The way it's presented often in the media gives the impression that people are only coming to Europe, that somehow there is something particularly attractive about Europe, when in fact, the vast majority of the world's refugees, around 85% at least, remain in their countries or regions of origin. So we don't hear anything or very little about those populations. And it increases, in my view, people's anxiety that somehow all of the world is heading towards Europe in particular, and even within that, a country like the UK, which has seen very little inward migration as a result of what was happening in 2015. So I think there is a tendency to decontextualise what's happening in the UK and Europe from the world more generally, and also, of course, to present the more dramatic stories, whether those are stories of death and people drowning in the Mediterranean, or whether they're stories of people being exploited or exploiting the system. In reality, there are much more everyday experiences of migration that people could relate to, about which we hear very little. Did you have some examples from your research of those everyday experiences? Well, I think the everyday experience of trying to feed your children when you're living in a camp and how the impossibility of, for example, accessing education in somewhere like Lebanon right now means that if you've been in that situation for three, four or maybe five years, you really don't feel that you have any choice other than to move onwards. It's not that you're being greedy or you want something that other people can't have and that you're trying to take something away from people. It's simply that you feel that you have to do the very best for your children and that you have no alternatives. So this is not necessarily about an extravagant lifestyle. It's about meeting basic needs. And bear in mind that many of the people who actually get to move have come from wealthier backgrounds in the first place. Their children were in school. They did have relatively good jobs in many cases. So this is a huge change in lifestyle in a downward sense. And they're not looking necessarily to get back what they had before, but to at least be able to provide a basic level of health and educational provision, particularly for their children, but of course also for themselves. So those everyday needs, they're not very dramatic or exciting or interesting to talk about, but they are fundamental to understanding why it is people feel that they have no choice other than to move. Do you hope that your research in sharing these more everyday stories, how do you hope it will improve future scenarios 
and more broadly, how can geographical research help to rectify some of these issues we've discussed? The everyday stories, I think, help to give people a better sense of the complexity of migrant decision-making. And then it's not just people wake up one morning and decide that they're going to go to Europe. It's a much more complicated process involving a whole range of different factors and a whole series of different decisions, often generated by different opportunities that come about, sometimes unexpectedly. So I think the everyday a humanity and a humanitarianism about this, that people can relate to a little more than some of the very dramatic things that we hear about in the media. But I think the really important point of our research is understanding the patterns, not just the individual experiences. So when we analyze the data from the 500 people that we interviewed, we see very clear patterns as to why people move and how they move in relation to particular policy decisions, for example. If you make it impossible for people to get a visa to join their family members, even if they you know, have very legitimate connections in that regard, then they will make the journey illegally or irregularly, even at huge risk to themselves, and even if that exacerbates public concern. Whereas if you were to think about this from a very pragmatic point of view, you would want perhaps to create those opportunities for regular migration so that families could be reunited, which is part of their um, rights under international refugee law, um, and they could start to rebuild a life uh, more effectively. They could also use the resources that they would otherwise have spent on the journey, including on smugglers and traffickers, to be able to contribute to the societies to which they move. So a lot of people have a lot of things to give to the societies they move, but they've lost it all on the journey and aren't able to do that. So I think it's not just about the individual stories, it's about the patterns that we see and how policymakers could be encouraged by taking a sort of broader geographical uh, and global or at least regional perspective rather than focusing on Europe to implement policies that ultimately deliver better outcomes, not just for individual refugees and migrants, but ultimately for the countries to which people are moving and in providing opportunities on the way that might enable those people to contribute to other communities that they've moved to as well. So it seems to us there's a win-win in all of this, but at the moment the focus is so oriented towards border control and management that some of the potential benefits of migration are not being capitalised upon. How did international governments cooperate to support migrants and refugees? So in the context of the 2015 crisis, as it's come to be called, and even in the case of the policies that we see now, governments across Europe have been trying to cooperate, but there are really two fundamental problems with that cooperation. The first is that they are almost in competition with each other to try and keep refugees and migrants out. And so, in fact, there hasn't been a lot of solidarity. There's been countries that have put fences up without cooperating with their bordering countries. There have been countries that have um, said that they're not going to help other countries, even though those countries, particularly Greece and Italy, have received the vast majority of people that's been arriving. So the first problem is that there isn't as much cooperation as there needs to be. But the second problem is, is that cooperation has been oriented primarily to be able to keeping people out. So rather than trying to take a pragmatic response, particularly in the case of the Syrians, to provide protection that isn't available elsewhere, to make sure that people have the international protection to which they're entitled, but also are able to support themselves and their families. Most of the policy effort has been going on into increasing border controls, increasing detention centres, giving information that would try and keep people out of Europe. And that has been primarily not because the numbers are 
particularly high. They're higher than they have been, but as I've said, they're not as high as they are in the rest of the world. It's been because the political and policy narrative in Europe has been very much about migration being out of control and how, as national governments need to increase control, they need to be able to demonstrate to their populations that they're doing that effectively by keeping people out of Europe altogether. So altogether, the focus has not been on supporting refugees and migrants, but rather on preventing them from arriving, or if they do arrive, making sure that other countries in Europe are primarily responsible for them, rather than the countries to which they might otherwise travel, for example, to meet up with family members who are already living there. For more educational resources on issues such as migration, development and inequality, visit rgs.org forward slash schools for the latest updates. Thanks for listening.